I'm your host, John Beethan, here on Alternative Health Tools Podcast, where together we discover and share alternative health tools and resources from alternative healthcare practitioners and experts. And this is episode number 75, and it's titled, Jake Eagle, Waking Up to Living a Conscious Life. The first four and a half minutes of this episode will give you a taste of what's to come in the full 45-minute interview with Jake. We'll be talking about making meaning, honesty, integrity, courage, and love, millennials, kindness, the redo, witnessing, and the four-minute meditation. And if you don't know what any of those things mean and you're still curious, well, just listen on. And for me, and for you, I consider this interview to be one of the most valuable episodes we've ever done. If you follow along with the notepad in hand and grab some of the links from the show notes from this episode number 75, you may just end up walking away with some direction and tools to live your life the ways you want to. And if that's not enough, then seriously spend some time on Jake's website, liveconscious.com, and see what options are there for you to learn from the videos, the blog posts, articles, and even options to attend a Live Conscious Retreat. And the cool thing about this is that we can change the meaning we make. Mm. And we've all done it. We, mm. We've had relationships with somebody and maybe we're um, upset or angry at that person. And then we get a phone call and we find out that that person has suffered some kind of tragedy. And all of a sudden, we think of them in a different way. And meaning changes in an instant. So for the last many years, that's been my focus, is is helping people learn a different way to communicate where they free themselves from a lot of preconceived ideas and a lot of old stories. And that's pretty much been the work that we've been doing for the last several years. So anytime when I'm relating with people, if I am doing so with honesty, integrity, courage, and love, mm. the future will naturally unfold in a productive, healthy way. If I am not relating with those criteria, then I can't trust the future mm -hmm. to be safe. It often is true for people who value kindness that they don't rate honesty as highly. It won't be necessarily one of their top values. And the reason is that oftentimes, to be honest, doesn't feel like we're being kind. Because sometimes wow. we're delivering difficult information to people or sometimes we're withholding information from people. To me, that's an example of not being honest. Meditation on our website is called a four-minute meditation because it takes four minutes. The reason it's so powerful, there are two reasons. One is because it only takes four minutes. And so what that means is when you don't have time to do a 10 or 20-minute meditation, you can do this. And the benefits are almost as great. Um, the meditation is very thoughtfully designed and it's called an integrative meditation. And when I say integrative, what I mean is that you are collecting different aspects of yourself as you go through the meditation. Hey, Jake, how are you? Hello, John. Good to be with you. Yes, it's really good to be with you. Jake and I have known each other for quite a few years. On one of the other podcasts that I was listening to, you had mentioned that I think you said you had been married how long? Like 25 years? 20 years? 24 years. 20, right? Yeah. 24. And I met you probably, I don't know, two or three years before that, right? 
I mean, I think we probably met in 91, so uh, 25, six years. Yeah. Wow. That's a long time. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, Jake um, has a organization to practice as a coach. Um, I've taken several of his trainings, which have remained and stuck with me a lot over the years. And we're going to talk a little bit about that because I know Jake well enough to know that you roll with certain concepts. You have long history as a psychotherapist, but at times things change and you discover that eh, maybe things aren't quite the way I thought it was. But uh, today you have liveconscious.com. Yeah, um, I don't know if you'd like to talk about sort of the different phases of um, the evolution of my work. Uh, when, when you and I met, I was doing brief therapy. And I was a big believer in that. So people would want to quit smoking. They would want to lose weight. They would have various challenges. And typically in one or two or three sessions, people would have a solution to those problems. I was going to call them superficial problems. Uh, They're not superficial when the person is suffering from whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But they are not really deep um, existential issues. Mm -hmm. So that's where I started out. out, And um, I did that work for probably seven to ten years. And then what I realized is that I, at that time, was in my 40s, and I had an experience where I realized I was still very anxious at some deep level. So I'd been working on myself diligently for many years, and yet I had this deep underlying anxiety, and that became a driver for me. It was like, what is this anxiety? Why do I have it after so many years? And that's when I started doing what I call deep work. And it was focused on figuring out what is it that people repress, because that which I repress is going to contribute to my anxiety. If there are things about me that either I don't know or maybe I know but I don't want you to know, then when I go out in the world, I'm anxious because either I or other people will see those aspects of me. So for several years, I was doing this very deep work with people, extremely rewarding. And then in the mid-90s, Hannah and I, my wife Hannah and I, met um, an elderly couple, John and Joyce Weir. And they were teaching a model, which they'd been teaching for 30 years, where they asked people to use language in a different way. And the key was that it asked people to use language in a way where they realized that they were making up meaning of whatever happened. They weren't saying events didn't happen. Things happen. People get in car accidents. People have serious illnesses. But the question is, how do I make meaning of what happens? And can I take responsibility for the meaning I'm making? And the cool thing about this is that we can change the meaning we make. Mm -hmm. And we've all done it. Mm -hmm. We've had relationships with somebody and maybe we're... um, upset or angry at that person. And then we get a phone call and we find out that that person has suffered some kind of tragedy. And all of a sudden, we think of them in a different way. And meaning changes in an instant. So for the last many years, that's been my focus is is helping people learn a different way to communicate where they free themselves from a lot of preconceived ideas and a lot of old stories. That's pretty much been the work that we've been doing for the last several years. And so you're going deeper into the meaning of meaning. Going deeper into the meaning of meaning primarily to help people realize and remember that they are making up meaning. And when they do, two things happen. First of all, they empower themselves because they go, well, 
I have a choice in how I interpret and make meaning. And that can be remarkably empowering. But then the, the, the more challenging part is then they start to question, well, does anything mean anything? Mm-hmm. And they can, they can go into a little bit of despair around that. It's like, well, what really, what is the purpose of life? What is the meaning? Interesting, yeah. And the answer is, it's up to you. Yeah. It's up to you. It's up to you to determine the meaning of your life, the purpose of your life. And oftentimes people resist that. They want the meaning to be defined by someone else or some external source. But when they really get their mind around it and they accept that it's up to them to determine the meaning of their lives, usually there's a profound shift that occurs at that point. Uh-huh. Interesting. People I talk to will say something to me um, that they believe and usually, not that I verbally respond, but sometimes I'll, I'll just say to myself, well, if you think so. Because I really do believe if when people do think it is so, then for them, it is. It's sort of like, I think I might have learned this from you, is that you can't argue another person's reality. Yeah, and it's an example of what happens in therapy. So a client comes in to see the therapist and they say, oh, I had a terrible day yesterday. My wife uh, yelled at me and she humiliated me. Mm. And she did it in front of other people. And the therapist says, oh, I'm so sorry. That sounds really difficult. Now, when the therapist does that, what they're doing is they're validating the client's perception and the way the client makes meaning of what happened. Mm. And Mm. so they reinforce what to me is an illusion. You see, the, the, yeah. the, wife, the wife that yelled at the husband, she didn't embarrass him. She didn't humiliate him. She's doing whatever she's doing, and, and we don't know why. He then has a choice in terms of how he interprets that and how he responds to it. He's not a victim. She didn't do anything to him. Mm-hmm. And so I really appreciate your point that you don't – hopefully we don't just roll along with people and validate whatever they say as if it's reality because it isn't. Yeah. And it's also how you're experiencing them in you, right? Yeah, I don't think the audience would know what that means. But the idea there is it's when I interact with you, for the most part, I'm not really experiencing you as a separate person. It's you in my mind, how I interpret you, how I make sense of you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's one of the one of the sort of more advanced parts of some of what we teach. Mm -hmm, Mm hmm. All right. Interesting. So then you teach that. I mean, obviously, you're doing that in a practice, but you're also really taking it to people in their lives in relationships. So in I know you do a lot of different workshops and, and labs a couple times a year. Are there mostly couples coming to those or individuals or? No, when we do, and we call them labs from the word laboratory. It's basically a place to come and experiment. It's a place to come and grow and work on yourself. And mm-hmm. about about two-thirds of the people are individuals, and maybe a third come as couples. Mm-hmm. That's the typical breakdown. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to name drop and say I've been following the work of Simon Sinek. And um, I'm becoming a student of leadership in terms of what it really is. And... <sighs> You also, I also had mentioned to you that I have a real interest in cross-generation collaboration. So we're talking about a whole new generation, what commonly are called millennials. You know, I'm experiencing more and more just because pretty much the work I'm doing right now, there appears to be some struggles, or at least how I perceive it, in terms of their inability to relate in some deeper levels that are, I think, largely attributed to 
what I think is an addiction to the distractions commonly called social media. And yeah, yeah, and, and, and I'm just really curious because we haven't talked for a while. I'm really curious if that's in your radar at all or what you might have to say about that. In other words, for people like us that are quote unquote older and mature, we've had some life experience. And uh, at some point, things get so painful maybe that you'd be seeking something out. But for people of, of a younger generation, everything seems to be just fine. And may not be so much seeking of this kind of this kind of um, work, I guess. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I'd say I'd say two things. One, just because we're older doesn't mean we're more mature. Um, Thank you. You know, yeah. I think that I think that you are, and I consider myself to be mature. But it's because we've worked on ourselves. It's not just because we're in our you know sixties. Uh, that that doesn't necessarily equate to maturity. Right. Um, in terms of the millennials, I would say two things. One is the most important thing I have to say is that it's a choice. When we do our programs, we have had people from the age of 23 to 87. And the 23-year-old, the 28-year-old, the 29-year-old that I'm thinking of were remarkably um, insightful, Mm. um, capable of connecting, Mm. introspective, really impressive young people. I am going to say that they probably spend less time on social media than that typical person in their 20s. Mm-hmm. So it's a choice. Um, these people are amazing. They have the capacity to do work uh, that I don't know that you and I had the capacity to do when we were in our 20s. Yeah. So that's where I'm hopeful that if they want to go deep and they want to be introspective and they want to learn and grow, they have a great opportunity to do that. Then the less optimistic comment is based on watching my grandson, who's 15, Mm. and has pretty limited capacity to relate with people because all he does is look at video screens all day long and social media and texting. And I know that that's having some kind of limiting impact on his relating skills. Yeah. 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 Well, many, many years ago when I took one of your workshops, when it was NLP, if you, if you remember right, you identified me as being highly visual and you thought that was great, except for one problem is that there's a whole world out there that you're not experiencing through the kinesthetic. Right. Right. Yeah. And so, it's, yeah. Yeah. It's a, so it's a similar thing. We, we, you know, social media, you know, is, um, it's in front of us, but it's not everything. It's, it's, it's less than that. I mean, it's less every, than that. Okay. Right. I mean, it's at least when you, let, let's say that people process information of one of, one of three ways, they're visual, they're auditory, or they're kinesthetic, and you were very visual and still are. So that meant that you were getting an experience, but not getting the full range of experiences. But still, you were doing it in real time and three-dimensionality. Mm-hmm. When, you, when you reduce that to looking at a screen, it's not only cutting out certain aspects in terms of how you relate with the world, but it's, not, it's, it, it, it's missing this huge component of other people being in your presence. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's, you have a favorite. So yeah, you have a favorite quote about this, don't you? Yeah, I have a quote from Rollo May that it doesn't just pertain to millennials; it pertains to all of us. And the right. quote, the quote goes like this: It says, "Does not the uncertainty of our time 
teach us the most important lesson of all, that the ultimate criteria are the honesty, integrity, courage, and love of a given moment of relatedness. Mm -hmm. If we do not have that, then we are not building for the future anyway. And if we do have it, then we can trust the future to itself. Mm. And, and so let me summarize it yeah. for people who haven't heard it before. The point is that he's talking about, does not the uncertainty of our time. Well, all times are uncertain. Mm. There, there always is uncertainty. So this applies all the time. And then he's talking about any moment of relatedness. And what he means is any time when we're relating with people. So anytime when I'm relating with people, if I am doing so with honesty, integrity, courage, and love, mm. the future will naturally unfold in a productive, healthy way. Mm. If I am not relating with those criteria, then I can't trust the future mm. to be safe. Mm. And I think one important thing for your listeners is that they don't have to accept the four criteria that Rollo May offered up. So he uses honesty, integrity, courage, and love. Mm -hmm. um, I would encourage your audience to take time to write down the four criteria that guide them in their lives. What are the four values that you want to guide you in your lives? For example, he uses honesty, integrity, courage, and love. Well, I don't use courage. I've replaced courage with the word kindness. Mm, nice. And so for me, I guide myself by always being honest always coming from a place of integrity, always being kind and loving. The reason I replace courage with kindness is because when I think of the need to be courageous, I, I feel myself tense. It's like I have to brace myself. I have to get ready to do something that's difficult. Where I, I don't believe things in life need to be difficult. I don't think that relationships need to be difficult. So that's why I, I changed the word courage. I replaced it with kindness. And I encourage your audience to look for their own words, their own values, and then use those to measure yourself on a daily basis. Mm. I, I actually really love that. Kindness is a very, very big part of what I measure myself on. I, I absolutely am fascinated by meeting people. It, it makes absolutely no difference who it is. You know, and and kindness is um, is really the way I prefer to like meet people, just from that perspective. I think it's always been one of your natural strong suits. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's it's it seems um, like the place that you naturally come from. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. I have other criticisms, but that would let's hear it. <laughs> <laughs> I told just f for Jake said for your listeners, uh, f yes, for our listeners, I, I did give Jake permission to challenge me on this because uh, challenges often how we grow, and I challenge others. So, uh, so what would those be? In well, it would be one, and it won't surprise you. Um, it, it it often is true for people who value kindness that they don't rate honesty as highly. It won't be necessarily one of their top values. And the reason is that oftentimes, to be honest, doesn't feel like we're being kind because sometimes wow. we're delivering difficult information to people or sometimes we're withholding information from people. To me, that's an example of not being honest. Um, and you've known me long enough to know and probably guess that my top value probably is honesty. Yeah. 
Um, it, it's, it's, it's one of the things that I think keeps my life very simple and there's very little drama in my life. People almost always know where they stand with me. Yes. So I have honesty before kindness and I would say that you have kindness well ahead of honesty and therefore may not always be as honest as I would want. But it's not up to me. We, we right. each have to decide for ourselves. Yeah, but I get to take a look at that and, uh, I can see in many respects how it doesn't really serve me very well in some contexts. Well, I think that when we're not honest, what happens is we end up in situations and we get surprised because we haven't mm-hmm. been fully disclosing. We don't always ask for what we don't want. We don't always set clear boundaries with other people. And then we end up down the road and uh, surprises occur. People ask us to do things we don't want to do, or they behave in ways that are unacceptable. And it's a surprise because we weren't honest from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to go back. But then there's, there is a technique you guys teach about that, right? Redoing there yourself? is, yeah. And it's probably the simplest and one of the most powerful things we teach. And it is really, it's really elegant because it's so simple. We call it the redo, R-E-D-O. And the redo is a matter of going back after any time or incident where I behave in a way that I don't feel good about. If I conducted myself in some way I don't feel good about, I go back to the person. I I don't necessarily apologize. I don't necessarily explain what happened. I just say, John, I'd like to redo the way I spoke to you before. Mm -hmm. And, And here's what I wish I had said. This is what I meant to say. And now I speak to you in a way that I wish I had spoken to you before, whether it was five minutes ago or five months ago. And the great thing about the redo is that I can do it anytime I want. People are incredibly receptive when I go to them and offer a redo Mm -hmm. because I'm taking responsibility. I'm not blaming anything on another person. I'm just saying I'm not pleased with the way I handled our interaction. And I want to redo myself. And I've never had anybody resist when I offer a redo. Yeah. There's something else going on, too. There's a word I would use called grace. It's an incredibly graceful way to relate with another person. It is. I agree. And um, there's another quote. This is a Viktor Frankl quote. Viktor Frankl said that between the stimulus and the response, there is a space. And in that space is our power and our freedom. What he meant is that in that space is our power and freedom to choose. So here's the thing. If, there, if you and I have an interaction on a Tuesday morning, and it, I, I'm not pleased with the way I speak to you. It doesn't go well. Mm-hmm. And that's the stimulus. And the response is, you know, I, I have a choice in terms of my response. I can live with the fact that I am not happy with our interaction, or I can come back to you and redo myself. Say, John, I want to, I want to do that again. Mm-hmm. The more time that goes between the original stimulus and the more and the response is the the greater amount of suffering. Mm-hmm. It's time in which we're not connected. It's time in which I am probably talking to myself self-critically or having regrets. So. The other thing about the redo is that the sooner I do it, the less I suffer. Oh, yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. I do know Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who wrote the book, The Five Stages of Death and Dying. There was a period in my life where I got to do a workshop with her, and she had said, basically, if you don't deal with something for 14 seconds, it becomes unfinished business. Yeah, well, I like that. Never heard that. But Hannah and I, our objective is to do redos within five seconds. Awesome. Yeah. 
Love it. And I would say 98% of the time we do. Yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. And there's also sort of a structure that, in listening to one of your podcasts with Laura, that I became aware of where there's a period where it's appropriate in some sort of interaction with your partner or with another person where you actually step back and have the conversation later. Now, this is different than a, than a redo, but, but can you talk a little bit about that? Because part of what I'm trying to do here is to give people a sense how they can take this, something from this podcast, and actually apply it. Well, I'm not sure exactly what you're referring to, but I suspect that it was something that I referred to as witnessing. And if I have an interaction with someone like my wife and there's conflict or tension, what we find is helpful is if one of us witnesses the other. Instead of trying to have a dialogue where both people talk about what happened and we Mm -hmm. share our perspectives, the one who's the most upset, this is how we think of it, the one who's the most upset should be the one to talk first. And the other person is there to witness and listen and try and understand what it was like for the other person. Don't rebut it. Don't comment on it. Don't challenge it. Just simply try to understand what is it like for the other person. And one key thing here is do you fundamentally believe that person? Like Uh, I've been with Hannah for 25 or six years and she's never lied to me. I, I think that's an accurate statement. She's just incredibly honest person. I trust her. So no matter what she says, I assume that it is true for her. I may not agree with her, but it is true for her. So knowing that, it's not difficult for me to witness her. Mm. And when I do, what happens is if she starts out with any level of upset, as she shares more and she feels me listening to her, she immediately de-escalates and gets to a place where we're more more able to connect. Mm. I, what, I, what I do not do is then immediately come back and say, well, here's what it was like for me. Mm-hmm. We actually like to give it some space, whether it's 20 minutes or a day, depends on the situation. Mm-hmm. But I think it's very valuable and very simple and very few people do it. Everybody wants to get their rebuttal in right away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, people aren't listening. They're probably- people aren't listening and people are coming for the most part from a place of, um, of defensiveness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Worried about being right or wrong or judged. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that I see today is everybody's overly politically correct. And the yeah. idea is, I mean, you hear people say all the time, well, he judged me or she judged me. Yeah. It's like, well, we do do that. We're human. Yeah, exactly. We do that. And when I judge you, if I judge you as not being, I haven't interacted with you for a long time, but historically, right. let's say I judged you as not being the most honest person I know. Well, I'm only telling you something about me. I'm just telling you about me and my values. Somebody else might have a very different opinion of you. Yeah. Maybe you weren't honest with me because maybe you were intimidated by me. Maybe it was my responsibility. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. the point is we all make judgments. Yeah. And uh, Well, I think it's what we do. I, I, am, I think it's what we do, and I'm pretty sick and tired of people throwing the judgment word out constantly. Mm-hmm. And usually, I mean, you did say that you know, there's a level of honesty where I don't really, I'm not as honest as I could be. Actually, I've become a lot more honest. So I usually let people know in certain circumstances, something you may have heard before, which is, you know, I do judge and I expect to be judged. Yeah. So let's just call it a level playing field. And judgment is not such a bad thing. It's sort of what keeps us going down the road in a car and not crashing into other people. 
Yeah, and I think it depends on what we're judging. When we're judging other people as being fundamentally good or bad, I think that's not helpful. But when we judge that a person's behavior is not acceptable, Mm -hmm. that to me is a very reasonable thing to say. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I was on a phone call earlier today with a gentleman who's on a board of a company where I serve, and he was really ranting and raving. And I, I, I said to him, you know what? Stop. This is just totally unnecessary. I don't want to be on a call where somebody's ranting and raving. I was judging the yeah. way he was communicating. Yeah. Yeah. Felt completely appropriate. Yeah. So what other kind of uh, tools do you have that somebody could walk away with today? And then it's, Well, another, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, and at some point, I really do want to you know, talk about what, you're gonna, what you have coming up. Okay. But, uh, but yeah. Well, I, I, one other tool. Um, so, uh, what have we gone over so far? We've talked about the redo, and mm-hmm. we've talked about witnessing. Mm-hmm. And I would say that we have a great meditation on our website. It's called a four-minute meditation because it takes four minutes. The reason it's so powerful, there are two reasons. One is because it only takes four minutes. And so what that means is when you don't have time to do a 10 or 20 minute meditation, you can do this. And the benefits are almost as great. Um, The meditation is very thoughtfully designed and it's called an integrative meditation. And when I say integrative, what I mean is that you are collecting different aspects of yourself as you go through the meditation Mm -hmm. and very briefly what you're doing is you're going through the four directions you're you're facing the south and then the east and then the north and then the west and you're coming back to the south and as you do that you're getting in touch with different aspects of yourself different resources that you have when you're done there's a sense of feeling whole and like i say i mean it takes four minutes i can do it in two if i'm really rushed I've done it so many times, I can do it in my mind. I don't even have to actually go outside and do it, which is the nicest way to do it. So that's on our website. I think it's there as an MP3 that people can download, and it's free. Yep. I'm going to include it in the show notes for sure. Great. Good. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's other ways to get connected. Um, You know, I've done the uh, four directions meditation, um, actually with a friend, and it was very, very nice. I've done it several times. It's actually reminding me, not a bad idea to re-pick it back up. Yeah. It's actually yeah. on my phone. I put it on my phone so I could have it Oh, with nice. Me. Yeah, so I'd just okay. get into it that way. If you were going to design a defining moment, what would it be? Well, I'm not sure you can. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. I think that that's the purpose of ritual, and our culture lacks ritual. But I think one of the things we all need to go through is to individuate from our parents, and then later we need to individuate from our partner. Mm-hmm. And I would recommend having a ritual for both of those, and I think they become defining moments. But um, the defining moments in my life were not things that I they were not things I necessarily could have identified at the moment, mm-hmm. but looking back, they stand out. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them, the most recent one actually was just a couple years ago where um, my best friend was diagnosed with uh, terminal cancer. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had just gotten the news and I had kind of a sleepless night. And the next morning I went to a group meditation. It was a meditation I'd been doing for a few months, but not enjoying it and not very good at it. I was exhausted that day and I almost didn't go, but I did. I went anyway, I think because I was so tired, my defenses were down. Mm. I went somewhere in that meditation I've never gone before. Um, I've since Mm. written about it and developed a model that's based on three different levels of consciousness. 
the first level is safety, the next one is heart, and the third one is spaciousness. I went to a place of spaciousness, and in that place, which is nonverbal, there really is no sense of time. Mm. And when I accessed that state where there is no sense of time, I had a level of relaxation and comfort that I've never felt in my entire life. Mm. The cool thing is that it lasted for six months. I, I stayed in that state of deep relaxation with essentially no anxiety for six months. Mm. Um, the reason I know it was six months is because six months later to the day, um, I ended up having to go to the emergency room at the hospital because of some pain that I was having. Turned out it wasn't anything serious, but going to the hospital, I jarred myself out of that state. I went back to that place of safety and anxiety. Since then, it's been an ongoing process for me to learn how to get back to the place of spaciousness and heart consciousness. And, and I can do it. Um, I don't live there all the time, mm-hmm. but um, it's one of my objectives in my work with people now is to teach them to access higher states of consciousness. I was going to ask you about that. And, and I'll relate it back to what we talked about earlier. So the Viktor Frankl quote was, between the stimulus and the response, there's a space, and in that space is our, is our power and our freedom, our power and our freedom to choose. That's where 99% of therapy focuses. Mm-hmm. It says, here's what happened. Let's figure out what we can do so the next time it happens, you can behave better. Mm. What I'm interested in is not working with people so much after the event that causes the problem, but I'm interested in helping people attain a level of consciousness so that when the stimulus arises in the first place, Mm -hmm. they have a different response than they would have had had they been in a different state of consciousness. So, for example, when I'm in a state of heart consciousness, where I'm very open, experiencing a lot of gratitude, um, very relaxed, if a stimulus arises, my response is predetermined. It will be very different than if I was in a state of safety consciousness. Mm. So I think this is a great source of leverage. Now, you know, you or your listeners may think, well, that's the whole point of spirituality and um, various paths that people are on. But I think that those paths are um, missing some psychological aspects. So to me, it's a, a blending of the two, working on my state of consciousness while also having a lot of fundamental tools around communication skills, developing maturity, as you and I talked about earlier, knowing how to set boundaries, having individuated from my parents. Those to me are sort of prerequisites. And if I've done those things, then when I start to work on my state of consciousness, I can really free myself. Mm-hmm. Do you offer those prerequisites? Yeah, so those prerequisites are available in two ways. That's me working with people individually, which I now do via Skype or Zoom. Um, and then the other way is when people come to our, our labs or our retreats, which we do twice a year. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, we're not doing another program until the summer of 2018. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that we traveled and moved to Hawaii recently kind of disrupted our schedule. So the, our next our next retreat will be uh, the summer of 2018, and then January in 2019, we'll be doing another one in Mexico. Okay. I also see uh, something about um, something February 2nd through the 9th, 2019. That's the one you just Yeah, mentioned. right. Actually, okay. that's that's the one in Mexico. Okay, okay. Right. great. Yeah, it's February so, 9th. 
These are six, seven, eight-day retreats, and can you give us some idea of what somebody might experience in those six to eight days? Yeah, um, to be modest, what they learn is they learn to enlighten themselves. That was fairly modest. Yeah. If somebody comes to these programs and they jump in with both feet, they learn the tools to take responsibility for their lives. They learn the tools to communicate in a clear and mature way. Mm -hmm. They learn what their values are. They walk away with the tools to live their lives the ways they want to. And to me, that means you you can enlighten yourself. You can wake yourself up. That's why we call it live conscious. It's about living consciously, the way you communicate, the way you eat, the way you do everything in your life. And so it's why our programs are seven and eight days long, because when you immerse yourself in that, before it's over, you will have the experience of living a different way. Whether you want to do that going forward or not is up to you. And to my dismay, a lot of people choose not to. Mm-hmm. because I guess because to them it feels like work. My personal opinion is that is that it's a lot less work to live this way um, once you make the decision to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that comes from your, not belief as much as knowing that um, this can all be real quite easy. Like rela- it can be. Rela- yeah. We haven't talked a whole lot about relationships, but that's something that's very unique with the work you do, is that you approach it like you, we don't need to suffer through relationship. We, we don't. And our, our whole thing, which is what Hannah taught me years ago, is that love can be easy. And um, mm-hmm. that was probably one of the other significant events in my life, which is when I learned that. Uh huh. What a great title for a song. <laughs> I'll, I'll let you write it yeah, yeah yeah well i'm not sure i know somebody that might be able to though that would be fun wouldn't it yeah yeah um related to that i want to say one other thing which is that there's a tendency for people who probably listen to shows like this and read books like the one i've written and many many others to work hard on themselves and what you just brought up was the idea that it can be easy and Here's the key, I think, is getting to a place where after we do a sufficient amount of work, Mm -hmm. we've done the things I talked about earlier, we've individuated, we've developed skills, we've, we've matured ourselves. At a certain point, what I believe is necessary is we have to stop believing that there's a problem to be solved. Mm -hmm. We have to get out of our head. We have to stop thinking so much. And all of the personal growth work that I'm familiar with encourages people to think and to work and to go around and around. And what I believe is we're just going around in the same maze, but we're going faster and faster and we think we're making progress, but we're still in the same maze thinking that there are problems that need to be solved. And an enormous opportunity is to simply step out of that maze. And when I do that, what I'm doing is I'm stepping into a state of gratitude. Mm. You called it grace earlier. It's probably mm-hmm. the same thing. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know what your audience is, but I know you well enough and me well enough to say that you and I have no excuse not to live in a state of gratitude every day. Yeah. And I don't care if your girlfriend dumped you yesterday, you still have no excuse not to be in a state of gratitude. Mm-hmm. We, we all encounter difficult things from time to time, but in our culture, we've, we've, we've become somewhat self-indulgent about focusing on the fact that sometimes things are difficult or challenging or disappointing, mm-hmm. and we lose touch with grace and gratitude. Yeah, I love grace and gratitude. Nicely said, Jake. 
Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm really hoping people get something out of this. And uh, so, boy, you just like put into a nutshell what people would experience if they decide to really go for it in one of the retreats. Yeah, go for it, whether it's a retreat or whether it's working with me individually. Um, I'm really looking for people who are wanting to go for it because... I know. Um, well, you've always I, been that way. You told me a long time ago that you're not interested in working with people that don't want to change. Yeah. And there's yeah. so many therapists or people out there that sort of... Well, I think it was called social therapy, where you're just sitting talking for 12 years straight once a week yeah. to somebody to hear your problems and empower those problems. It's not Jake Eagle, that's for sure. Not what I'm interested in. Yeah. Right. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Um, anything else you want to you wanna pick up on? Um, I, I think just a, sort of a, a, a minor point to close with, which is that we're all going to die. Nobody gets out alive? Is, is that what you're saying? Yeah, what I'm saying is don't wait. Mm-hmm. Don't wait. Uh, people talk about what they want to do someday, maybe. Well, you know, now is the time. Yeah, now is the time. 